0: Because sometimes I enjoy things in not enjoying the product itself. Yeah, right. Exactly. So it's so like, many it's like times. a meta enjoyment in the form of not enjoying. It. Yeah. <laughs> Yo, what is going down everybody? Welcome to Owls at Dawn. We are just two dudes from Southern California who studied philosophy, politics, and religion around the world and decided to start a podcast where a week of bullshit with impunity. I am Austin Hayden-Smith. And I am Troy Palladori. And this week we are going to be talking about letting people enjoy things. People should just be able to enjoy things without getting their faces ripped off, right? Or should we have a, <laughs> a sphere for Roe or not? Or, or is Austin going to shit over everything you love? <laughs> um, we're inspired by an essay in Gawker. And um, so we'll post a link to this down in the show notes. It's called Let People Enjoy This Essay. And it's by B.D. McClay. Is that right? I believe so, yes. I believe so, too. So we will uh, post this down in the show notes so you can check it out. Um, Personally, spoiler, I enjoyed the essay. So, um, but more than anything and this is a bit of foreshadowing. I also was detached, and but I enjoyed it from a perspective of critique without identifying <laughs> myself too much with the essay and da-da-da-da-da. Okay, so we're going to talk about that in the main segment, and yeah, is there any housekeeping stuff we've got to get to before we jump into things, T-Roy? I guess only to mention that if you want to support us you can go to patreon.com slash Dawn and get access to
1: some goodies there just a heads up uh, as we said on the last episode the next episode after this one we're going to be doing our patron sponsored episode on the philosophy of pedagogy damn so look out for that
0: yeah, yeah that'll be good so patreon.com slash owlsatdawn uh, I think that's all the stuff let's get into the goodness it is time to start off the way we start off every motherfucking episode that's right it's a shitty minute. It's time to vent. It's time to let loose. It's time to release, Troy. This is the segment of the show where one of us gets to rant and rave about something that's pissing us off. Troy, what's got you down, man? So I know it kind of feels like when we first started
1: this podcast, we couldn't stop talking about like the Trump phenomenon because 2016, the election kind of happened right at yep. the beginning of our, of our podcast life. And we eventually yep. came to the point where we tried to tell ourselves we're not going to talk about Trump anymore. And then we occasionally – uh violated that principle but we kind of you know as principles go you you institute them so you can only sometimes violate them right as opposed to always violate them we're kind of doing that with COVID now a little bit yeah Um, but i did have one thing i I felt was kind of important to say at least important to get off my chest and i wanted to get your view on it so here in the us there's a phenomenon uh happening right now where universities are back and for many Mm -hmm. of them for the first especially um in the south many of them are opening back up um, to in-person instruction for the first time. We actually, a, a mm. number of universities down here um, had in-person instruction for some classes, but the vast majority have been on Zoom since since March of 2020. Um, and it's been a bit surreal being Bangkok campus this week. In um, a number of states, including my own, I don't want to name my university, by the way, so I'm not going to do that. But um, <laughs> for a number of universities down here, the states have decide have banned, uh, mask oh, excuse me vaccine mandates so um, the, the universities are not, are not allowed to mandate uh, vaccines for students or at least they're not allowed to mandate COVID vaccines They can't. okay I was going to say what about
0: <laughs> yeah what about MMR because I remember when I went off to when I first started grad school in the UK we all had to show our vaccine records for um, measles mumps and rubella or if you didn't have the record then you had to get them and I remember thousands of students were getting the fucking jab for MMR in like the gymnasium or whatever
1: yeah, I mean, I've had to do like t- fucking tubercul- tuberculosis inoculations for uh, many jobs. So that's not the here nor there, yeah. though. And I, and I do believe that the mm-hmm. university had already decided not to mandate vaccines before the states, uh, for the state itself, came down and uh, banned that from happening in the okay. first place. So I don't know. I don't know for okay. sure, but I, I recall that being the case. I could be wrong on that, though. Either way, okay. the the university had no desire to, to mandate the vaccine um, for its own uh, self interest, right? But masks are mandated, so you have to wear a mask if you're indoors. But students are interpreting that as in the classroom and class has started. <laughs> so, like, they literally put their masks on, like when you start talking. It's like, well, that kind of defeats the purpose. Either way, I'm not. I don't want to shit on uh, the students. I think that they're very confused and don't know what's going on. I think the key thing for me is, and I don't think that um, university administration is really taking account of, is the the very idea of mandating mask wearing, but not vaccines, is a very confusing signal to especially students, but also staff and anybody else who's at the university as well. And I think they're doing mm. that. Be- the reason they're doing it is because, I mean, it's a self-interest thing, right? We feel like we can't get away with mandating vaccines, even though we think that would be the best thing to do. So we'll just do the next best thing, which is mandating masks or something like that, right?
0: Mm. Um,
1: but what they're not understanding, I don't think, is that universities by making this decision they're kind of treating um students as customers like what can we do that will not make the customers go away basically right that's their logic their reasoning
0: mm.
1: when in actuality universities maybe less so now than they've ever been but they still are moral and intellectual authorities in their communities to their students and to the families of their students and other people who are in the city in the vicinity in state whatever right um again probably less than they've ever been for both good and bad reasons Um, but they still act as that as much as probably anything does right um Mm. and so when the university itself decides not to mandate vaccines when clearly that's like an option because some are doing that right um they're signaling to students that this is not as bad as it could be, or this is not that bad of a situation, right? If it were that bad, then we'd be mandating vaccines, but we're not, so it's not that bad. But we are mandating mm. masks, so it's kind of bad. That's itself confusing, <laughs> right? But what the, re- the reason it's ultimately confusing, I think, and really um, kind of uh, ultimately just really bad in the end is that students are gonna take that, and I think they already are, as masks being basically a virtue signal, right? Look, mm. it's not that bad. If it were that bad, we as an intellectual and moral authority, right, we have just lots of scientists on campus. Students kind of assume that professors and uh, faculty have power over how things work in universities. Obviously they're wrong about that for the most part, right? But they kind of assume that's the case mm-hmm. since those are the people they have everyday contact with, right, and these people have PhDs right. and um, you know they're, they're authority figures in their fields, ideally. So, of course, they're going to be authority figures in how the, the university works. Um, and so they see that it's not that bad because we're not mandating vaccines. That's the signal being given to them. So the masks really are just going to be a signal. Like, it's just like, uh, yeah, this is a way we tell ourselves that there's like a thing going on. Right. Or we show that we're, <laughs> we're serious people who care about the community or whatever. We wear masks, which is why right. they don't put the masks on until class starts <laughs> instead of like when they enter indoors. Um, oh, right, right, <laughs>
0: right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's like a here's a here's a here's the thing we do like we get our pens out, we get our <laughs> notebooks out, we put our masks on. That's how we get ready for listening,
0: right? Um, That's so ridiculous, man.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's it's not all students, but it, it's a it's a lot. It's plurality. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think the the big issue is, and I think this is going to be a, a big problem going forward, is that if you see <laughs> taking precautions against COVID as just always <laughs> virtue signaling, right? then yeah. that, that just plays into the political discourse where it's just everything you do um, regarding precautions against COVID is a political signal rather than a thing you do to protect other people and yourself, right? Which first and foremost should be mm-hmm. about. Um, and that's, you know, obviously bad because we don't need more and more things to become purely and merely a political signal. But also I think it, it hurts the, um, the university's reputation and uh, students and families perspectives, right? Because they're now seeing the university as doing this thing that's causing it's it's very uncomfortable and um seemingly unnecessary, but we're doing it because we have to do some sort of political or social signal or whatever, right? And that's just yeah. gonna dampen anyone's motivation to do anything at all. Right. And also I think it means that the call to that the the importance to get vaccinated also sounds like a, hey, go be a good person. Like, go be an exemplary person, right? Rather than a, like, mm. you really need to do this. Students w- will probably be thinking, well, if I really needed to do this, then you would mandate it, <laughs> right? Obviously, you're not mandating yeah. it, so it, it must just be another signal of the kind of thing you should do that's super erogatory, right? It's like, you know, if mm. you want to be above and beyond, get an A+. plus. Well, I'm comfortable with a B, right? So I don't really need the yeah, moral yeah. A+. Plus. So, yeah. Yeah that's what's going on here and it sucks and I'm expecting to it not to work so
0: well in the next two months, but we'll see. Also the, the whole dynamic of trying to use like an individual exceptionalism tied to getting a vaccine seems to be very counter to a more community minded approach rather than maybe doing duty. Like sometimes doing duty isn't a bad thing, right? Like, like, fuck, you, you can speak to this, you Kantian, um, but do it, doing doing the social duty is is maybe the highest thing, right? Maybe that's the highest thing rather than being the supreme individual who is doing the thing for credit because I think that latter idea is still tied into a sort of instrumental logic. You're doing it in order that you get some sort of return, right? So there's still a type of transactional logic, right? Or a hypothetical imperative that is still driving it, an instrumental imperative or logic that is driving it. And I think that just really ties into further and further forms of um, kind of consumer culture, commodity culture, um, the commodification of subjectivity itself, mm-hmm. right? We, uh, and so it just, I don't know, even, even just that as a sort of like structural framework to me seems really problematic, you know?
1: Yeah, and I mean, uh, this gets to like my um, like touchstone ethical thesis: where social facts affect um, how you can possibly make coherent an individual duty. And in this case, I can tell mm-hmm. students, "Look, you you need to get the vaccine. Like, you you are morally obligated to do that if you can, right? If it's not a danger to you or something like that. If you're not, let's say, immunocompromised right, right. or whatever, right? Um, sure, I can say that." But given that the university is not mandating it, they have a choice between respecting the authority that I am or that the university is, and so I mean mm. you can guess where they'd be rational to to go with there. So mm. the the very fact that the university is taking this this action undermines in anybody's authority in making a case that there's a, a strong moral obligation to take the vaccine if you can get it.
0: Mm. Yeah, and then of course you can even broaden that out, maybe more community-wide to the state, and then to the nation. And because there isn't a strong uh, social duty, there isn't a a strong social ethic that is tied, that is that is cohesive or that is um, that is uh, like ubiquitous, we might say. Because of that, you have all of these like fractured. different communities that are trying to figure out their own kind of ethic right and it just becomes this muddled mass of confusion we, we have something similar kind of here in australia i don't think it's as protracted as, as the experience in the states but you know we definitely because we've got states that have different legislation and then we have the federal government and so there's been some criticism from someone that i actually have done some work with i was the research assistant for his most recent book called out of the ordinary he's a political theorist named Mark Steers who was a speechwriter for Ed Miliband um, in the UK but he runs the Sydney Policy Lab here and he has written this book really interestingly about like um, you know nation building and coming together and so his big frustration with Australia right now is that there isn't a strong central voice right? and that there isn't a strong central social ethic and he's like, look you don't have to fall into either authoritarianism on one side or like chaotic revolutionary um, just destroy everything on the other side, right? like uh, you don't have to have, you don't have to fall into fascism if you're going to have a sort of like um, national cohesion, right? and that doesn't mean that you also forsake the um, growth and development of a local community, right? so um, I don't know, I, I he, and he's been writing a lot about his frustrations here in Australia, and it does seem that, and I don't know, I don't know where I stand on this, so I kind of just kind of put it out there, because there is something important about local autonomy, like, you know, Western Sydney is going to have um, different demographic needs than the eastern suburbs is right. So there are certain particularities that we should be sensitive to for education and for um, other types of investment and other types of social activities, right? De- depending on kind of demographic differences. But then there are sometimes where it almost seems like no, this this is something that kind of before the virus there is a type of equality, maybe maybe it's almost like a like a formal notion. Um. That that maybe we should all sort of kind of embrace and and accept um, a sort of more centralized more centralized ethos uh, with regards to, but then it's difficult because then who becomes the arbiter of determining um, which thing is the thing that we are all equal before and which in which instance is it something that is uh, we should be locally sensitive to right like is education. Uh, Why is education different than um, a vaccine? Is it just because one is in the sphere of like health and biology and as humans, we're all susceptible in an equal way? But that's not entirely true either because some people have comorbidities, um, you know? So it's like this does become a much more difficult philosophical question, but at least I do think there's something interesting to kind of get us thinking in that direction.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think those are all really important questions and there's no easy answer to to things like... You know, uh, how centralized do we go versus when do we allow local autonomy and stuff like that? Those are all difficult questions. the, the, the thing for me though is, look, even from the most like classically liberal leaning, full libertarian sort of viewpoint, like there's still a central government that has to protect you when an earthquake happens, right? <laughs> like uh, there still has to yeah. be a central government that like, enforces contracts or whatever, like does some basic things that allows for autonomy to exist, right? i would think that like stopping a pandemic is up there in tier one of things that are in that central government's job right um because you can't everyone knows you can't really have freedom in this circumstance that's why everyone you know referred to as like my freedom right it's obviously a Mm. false uh, facade of freedom it's not real freedom in any any way so even the most sort of libertarian-leaning like classical liberal is going to admit that there, there needs to be some sort of centralized force to ensure that autonomy is protected. So you don't even have to make like a strong leftist argument uh, for or against centralization. Of, and obviously, you know, different parts of the left have very different viewpoints on that. Yeah. I don't. Th- that doesn't even really need to come up in this specific case, does it seem to me. I think – yeah, I think a, a classical liberal can make the exact same case um, about – Something like you know, uh, mandating vaccines for those who are able to take them.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. There's, um, it's really difficult too because these are the the exact types of conversations that we're not having, right? Like, look, we don't need to go down this rabbit hole. I'm sure it'll be my shitty minute at some point, but, um, or maybe not. Fuck it. But just like, I, I've been really disillusioned by the way that the public discourse, the media is discussing the withdrawal of the troops from Afghanistan. Not because I don't feel like there's no insight, or not because I'm some sort of geopolitical expert, but it's because there are the deeper questions, like, um, like, asking about the value of human life, and, um, you know, kind of stepping back from uh, political positioning, stepping back from the more kind of what I would think of as being like myopic and superficial sets of concerns about you know who's to blame and um, you know the the financial cost you know like those things yeah we need to talk about those things but th- it's very rare that we step back, step back and ask these deeper, what I would say, are philosophical questions, and and that's the stuff that we kind of need in our discourse. So even the issues around coronavirus, we're not having these conversations, and the media doesn't offer us the resources to be able to have these types of conversations, and so um, the level of discourse just takes place at a really kind of, I think, kind of really diluted um, level, you know? And uh, and it is quite frustrating because then there's no real productive there's no real productive engagement, you know, and and things kind of never really push forward, and we kind of just get trapped chasing our own tails. It seems like.
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly the the last you know week or two um, discourse on Afghanistan's been something else. Uh, probably there's been more talk about Afghanistan in the last two weeks than in the past maybe. 17, 18 years?
0: <laughs> yeah. But other than yeah, maybe yeah. when
1: Obama got first elected and there was that, you know, discussion about Iraq being the bad war but Afghanistan the good war. There was some some upsurge there but it's really
0: been more in the last two weeks than in the past 20 years. Yeah, and I just think we just don't have the resources to have these types of important societal conversations. Like, what is society? You know, how do we engage in society? And this totally fits into precisely kind of what you were talking about with with the COVID pandemic and, um, you know, kind of the moral authorities and, and like what from where do morals come, you know? And how do we think about morals? And um, and we can't even have those conversations because they don't—they're not politically expedient, and they're not easily monetizable, right? So I think I think it's important that we try in whatever spaces that we can that we're always trying to crack open that nut a little bit.
1: Yeah. Let's also just add the fact that that journalists, especially and like uh, TV media. Uh, feel like they're disallowed from ever talking about those things because they're, in some sense, partisan or whatever, right?
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so instead, we'll do the nonpartisan thing of reporting exactly what the Pentagon tells us and nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> nonpartisan. <laughs> yeah,
0: <laughs> Yeah. nonpartisan. Uh, oh, fuck. All right, dude. Well, let's wrap that madness up and let's get into this main segment, yeah? Yeah. All right, sweet. So, all right. So Troy sent me this essay from Gawker called Let People Enjoy This Essay. And the subtitle is How the Mindset of an Irritating Web Comic Infected Criticism. Um, Did you read this comic that was called "Shh"? Did you read it? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I was aware of the one panel, which
1: has become a meme. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, I first saw the actual
0: full comic, all the panels uh, today when I read this. Okay, yeah, so for people who don't know, um, there is just this panel, or this panel, this comic called "Shh," which plays out in three panels. In the first, two men sit on a couch, one making fun of the other for watching sports. In the second, uh, the sports fan utters the titular "Shh." Clamps his enemy's mouth shut and then in the third having ensured silence he utters four words Let people enjoy things Um, So yeah as Troy said it's been it's been memed to death but this essay um, really wants to look at this kind of issue of should we just let people enjoy things like the endless stream of Easy to consume content on streaming services, which is something we talked about a couple weeks ago. You know, with regards to music, and I brought up you know Netflix a little bit, but it's also just something that I think everybody, especially over the past year and a half, has become more and more familiar with, as we've all just been binging shit at a higher rate and consuming stuff at a higher rate. And I guess the question is, is really kind of potent. Should we just let people enjoy things? What do you think, T. Roy? Initial thoughts. I mean, I guess I haven't. The
1: the author, B. D. McClay, talks a bit about how people posting this meme as a response to any form of criticism, right? Has become like the most annoying thing you can possibly do. It's it's like the ultimate <laughs> reply guy troll kind of move. With, when any, any negative comment is made about anything, you just post to let people enjoy things, right?
0: Mm. I
1: guess I haven't experienced it like that because I'm not uh, extremely online as some people are. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. so for me, When I first looked at the actual entire comic for the first time, right, all three panels, um, I was like, I kind of reacted of like, yeah, I agree in that context, because the smug asshole who doesn't know anything about sports and then just assumes that it's stupid because they're ignorant, they need to shut Mm. the fuck up. Right, because you can enjoy <laughs> sports not simply as a you know passive automaton who's receiving hedons from the touchdowns or whatever. Right, mm. you can actually enjoy sports in a somewhat critical mode as well. Uh, now, I don't know if the the person in question in the comic is, is doing. Obviously, it's not ambiguous because it's a fucking comic, and who gives a shit about this kind of analysis, right? Um, yeah. That said, at the same time. The use of the you know quote unquote let people enjoy things as a response to any critical attitude at all is is yeah. certainly a thing I would I would reject and it is extremely annoying. Um, and I and I co-sign a lot of the arguments in this essay talking about the sort of aversion to the critical attitude. At the same time, though, and this is something I want to talk about with you. We, we don't think into it right now. We can get into it later if you want. But mm-hmm. it's it's easy for two philosophers to say that because we like. <laughs> the critical attitude right we get yeah we also get enjoyment from just occupying the critical space that space of yeah. deta- detachment where you evaluate things without having exactly. a sort of predetermined attitude towards it A evaluative attitude towards it that is um and not everyone does that and that's also fine <laughs> right so there's a there's a complex here that i'm not
0: quite sure how to navigate yet yeah no that's really important because sometimes i enjoy things in not enjoying the product itself. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So, it's a, so like, many it's like a times meta enjoyment in the form of not enjoying. Yeah. <laughs> so many times I will watch a film that we're going to discuss on show me the meaning. And I'll be like, I fucking don't like this movie that much. But through the course of the conversation <laughs> with the other guys, with the other hosts, I'm kind of like, oh, yeah okay, I, I didn't enjoy the film in the sense that like I sat there and I think it's a good film, I think there should be more of it, I think it was well-made, like those kinds of things, but I enjoyed sitting here and talking about some of its weaknesses and some of its problems and some of the themes it brought up, and I think it's because for me, enjoyment isn't, and I think this is what, one of the things that the essay talks about, it's not just simply like this consumptive, like I taste it and it produces pleasure right? Like a piece of chocolate, right? Like, if we could think beyond that type of consumptive relationship where you just simply consume something and it's like, ooh, good versus bad, you know, kind of like the fucking, ooh, positive stimulus or no stimulus, right? If we can think beyond that and kind of unpack it a little bit and think, okay, so what is it that we're consuming when we do consume uh, a product is that we're actually like opening ourselves up to an entire sphere of culture, of meaning, really. Like, it's really, we're opening ourselves up to an entire sphere of meaning. And I think that there's an open disposition that we can have as viewers, as people who who kind of come before a, a piece of art or content or whatever, and it requires openness on our part, not just simply to take, but we're actually giving in our relationship. It's almost like a, a giving of love, not to be too kind of like overly romantic here, but it's opening ourselves up to this entire sort of sphere, this field of meaning that is is playing out before us, and when we come with that type of disposition, it doesn't just mean that we enjoy it or we embrace it or we affirm it or we quote-unquote like it, but rather it allows us to kind of have, it's not even a detachment, I don't think. I actually think it's the opposite. I think it's, we become more immersed in it, we become more connected in it because we allow ourselves to receive the, 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 the multi-dimensions of meaning that are being presented before us. And I think when you can have that kind of disposition, then you can really kind of have a cool, critical, but you can also have um, a really kind of productive engagement with the product that's being played out before you.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the the sort of binary between attachment detachment thing, which has a long history, right? Especially in, in philosophy as well, right? And in ethics. Right, right. Um and, and detachment as being this proper perspective and disposition you're supposed to have in <laughs> right. order to not not allow your sort of subconscious evaluative attitudes to dominate your thinking or something like that right um mm. and that that's a problematic uh binary it, it's sometimes necessary right but it, it's very problematic and i think you're right to point out that you know we shouldn't really think about it as attachment or detachment with the product or the thing the content or whatever because it's not that mm. obviously if you're criticizing a thing you're attached to it in some way like you don't by criticizing it you're ascribing to it a value such that it's worth criticizing Right? No one criticizes the shit that you just took. I mean, you might do that as like a a meta joke, right? But not seriously. (laughs) Um, So you are attached to the product. You're not detached to the actual thing, the artwork or whatever. But what you are detached from is maybe like your sort of hedonic experience with it, which I think Mm. is appropriate, right? Because the issue, and this goes back to my hobby horse about like empiricism and utilitarianism, all that, you know, uh, all that shit, is that there's this reductive, um, sense an assumption that the only the only experience that matters is the hedonic experience you have with the product, right? What is the, right. the positively balanced attitude versus the negatively balanced attitude that you have? And you sort of figure out the net um, of those things and then that's how good the thing is. So you're basically just talking about your attitudes when you're talking about the thing, right? And obviously the like the stereotypical Marvel fan who says to any criticism of a Marvel movie, "Let people enjoy things," has fully inscribed that ethos, right? Where all that yeah, matters yeah, yeah. is the net hedons that I got from this thing, and it was and it was plus five, so it is good. But even the critic, in being like, "No, instead you have to be detached from the thing," right? and just evaluate the hedons that uh, a neutral observer would have. <laughs> That's basically like how Hume <laughs> criticizes movies, right? That's the Humean vision. Don't think about <laughs> how you actually experience um, this uh, this action or whatever. Think about how the neutral observer experiences it, right? The neutral average observer who has no predispositions. Um, they've also inscribed that same attitude, but at a more kind of abstract, maybe philosophically complex level, right? Uh, but yeah. it's still that wrong attitude, I think. So you can sort of detach yourself from your own hedonic experience with the thing while not disvaluing that because it matters, right? It's just not the only component that matters, nor is it anywhere near the most you know, primary component that matters. While still staying mm. attached to the thing and asking yourself not how much does the neutral observer who's purely rational um, sort of appreciate this this product, but instead like what can I do with this product, right? Like what's 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 a value and an interesting in it? And maybe there's a lot of things, maybe it's just a few things and there's a whole lot of disvalue in it as well. Like not a lot you can do with it um, or say about it or converse about it. So, and that's fine, but those are the things that are, that are most important it seems to talk about and not just sort of circling around this notion of what are the positive experiences associated with this artwork.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm gonna even kind of maybe double down on on what you said and say that i actually don't believe that detachment is real right like i don't believe that there is such a thing as detachment i mean
1: like ultimate detachment,
0: detachment is ju- yeah no yeah full detachment is just death right when you detach <laughs> from something that you just you're not nourished anymore from it and so it's like there is no relation so to 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 take that critical position you're actually attaching and what you're doing in your quote-unquote detachment, I think, is you're making a complaint and that complaint is really sort of echoing from a deeper desire that is either holding this piece of art to a higher standard or it's trying to attach it to some other theoretical apparatus that you're using as your uh, as your mediator of attachment, you know? But so there's something about like a, a critique or a complaint that is coming from a desire for something else, for something more, and so the dissatisfaction that comes from that position is one that I think is oftentimes like covered in judgment or critique but that is really sort of trying to articulate that deeper desire and for me, that's that's the more interesting thing like, okay, so what is it that we're trying to demand from content? What is it that we would like to see in pieces of art as they're presented to us? And then and, and then I want to kind of add another thing to this too is and what are the sources of hedonic stimulation? Like where do they come from? Like. Is it bad that you enjoy the new Avengers film, or is it bad that you enjoy the the new Marvel schlock, right? Is that a bad thing because it produces some amount of pleasure for whatever reason? No, 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 not at that level. Of course that's not bad. I guess what I would want to question is, is when you just push back and say let people enjoy things, enjoy things under what conditions? Enjoy things in what ways? Like. What are these flows of pleasure? Where are they coming from? Is it just simply, hey, we're just cogs in a machine, just shut up and let me enjoy my zombified state? Well, obviously, that I don't think is a good thing, right? Um, Someone probably isn't saying that explicitly, but maybe Maybe implicitly, they don't mean to but when they say, hey, just shut up and let me just enjoy things, maybe they're not having enough of a critical eye attended to the ways that we live in a system that manipulates our behavior and the production of desire and emotion and they're not paying attention to that and we can step back and we can say, well, hold on, I totally get it. There's a lot of fun stuff going on, action, you know, pretty people on screen wearing costumes doing amazing things, whatever. Right? we don't have to denigrate that but we can then say maybe in a more sort of like unpacking maybe psychoanalytic way we can say but what, what's going on under the surface here and are those the best things that we ought to attune ourselves to and could we maybe better could we have like higher demands for the production of art and the creation of content and I think that's where an interesting conversation could take place if we were open to those kind of deeper I think layers yeah so I have a question um, one thing I, I can I can I can make this concrete by the way for you if you need an example so don't don't forget that question but I can I can make this concrete related to a very specific piece of art and I could put my critical thinking hat on and I can totally unpack this and I think it will offend you but you ask your question and then I can give you my example in a second No no go for it Game of Thrones sucks bro <laughs> I and I think it's actually bad for society I. <laughs> I got through a season and a half and I was like I don't think this is good for us. I think that Game of Thrones is a product that was made by people who are sexually and libidinally repressed. Well, that's and obviously true because <laughs> because we live in a world, because we live in a world that doesn't allow us to have healthy relationships to the shadow or the dark side of our libidinal desires, and so it's played out on screen in the form of like dominant it's like sexual dominant fantasy and I was like I don't think this is good for us as human beings um, I, th- I mean obviously the set design is great the costumes are cool the, the power play positions is kind of interesting but the sexual politics of that show are a Bad, bro. Like, really bad. And I don't even think it's something that we could sit there and be like, oh, it's, but it's sexy. I don't think it's sexy. I actually think it comes from a really dark place. And I would much rather be like, but let's have healthy relationships with our, the dark side of us that wants to be ravished or taken or, or that wants to conquer or whatever. We can have those healthy sides to our sexuality without it being manifest in the form that that show gives us. And I think that show just feeds into like some dark, dark shadow shit that I'm not really keen about. So that would be me being, like, critical critical, and, like, I'm not sure that where it's coming from is coming from the best place. So, yeah, that's, no, I that's mean, my
1: thing. Not, not to get too far down that road, but I do want to register that there was lots of discussion about those exact themes in the show and how they differ from the books in important ways and ways in which the show seems to try to Adapt the you know dark sexual aspects of the books, and just clearly did not understand that at all, either how mm-hmm. it's done in the books or how to do it well at all. Just completely, I think you're right. Kind of coming from a a dark place in the in the mind of the writers. Not that I want to psychoanalyze too much, but it's hard not to in this case, right? And there's, there's <laughs> yeah, and, and, and just to say as someone who read all the books, there's lots of good discussion to have about sexuality as it's portrayed in the books. Um, And there's, you know, lots of criticisms to make and I think uh, sort of affirmations to make as well. And the show, having read the books, should be viewed as fan fiction, which is really what it is, right? There is the strongest theme in the books. I'll I'll end here. I don't want to go down to this because I know this is boring for anybody who hasn't read these books. Um, The strongest theme, I think, in the books is a, a kind of old school traditional heroism of the simple. That's the strongest theme. People who are downtrodden, mm. who are oppressed, um, and who are simple are ultimately the heroes because they, because of those things, in part because of those things, not entirely, um, are, are capable, not guaranteed, but capable of a kind of heroic moral virtue. Um, that is at best hinted at in the show (laughs) it's not at all um the main theme so that that's why i think and obviously maybe the show just didn't have time to develop that or who's to say right um tits and dragons are much more uh flashy than like uh the heroism of the simple or whatever um that said I agree with you. Mm. Uh, I, I enjoyed the show, the first few seasons of it, at least, simply as a hey. Those that's some shit that I read about, and now it's on on the screen, yeah. so that's kind of cool. And it, it it can't really, I don't think, be
0: enjoyed too much more beyond that. Now let's do this. Now let's 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 apply the comic to me and say, shh, Austin, let people enjoy things. And this is where I say, like, okay, I get it. I I also get it. I also don't want to be like a prude and say that we shouldn't explore certain themes because I'm trying to censor it. That's not that's not what I'm saying. So I'm kind of like, okay. So can people enjoy things and and can it spur productive conversation? Maybe. But like, at what point? At what point do I demand? And maybe that's it. So my complaint is coming from a place that I'm demanding something. I have a desire for something more. I have a desire for maybe richer explorations of sexuality, and richer explorations of the dark side of our sexuality, right? Like, 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 you know, the side of me that wants to be taken, right? I mean, I'm a dude, so it's, it's different, you know, I'm a straight fucking dude, so it's different, you know? But the most common fantasy among straight women um, is to be ravished, to be taken. Right, that's something that's constantly reported, right? So there's something about being overpowered that is like this this thing that comes out. There's a there's there's probably ways that we would say that that could be expressed pathologically. There's probably ways that we would say that would be expressed in ways that are, um, without kink shaming that are maybe not as healthy. And then there are ways to really get in tune with that. That's like you know what I do want to just be fucking taken, right? Or then let's say as a straight dude, right? Um, that maybe there is an impulse to to conquer, to dominate, to ravish, to be the ravisher you know there's probably really bad ways that that not probably there are really bad (laughs) ways that that can be expressed and then there are really healthy ways that we can start to be like okay there are these other sides to us and so for me then when i look at that kind of show I just I just get kind of pricked. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm somebody who has been really interested in kind of exploring sexual polarity and, and Tantra and, and various other traditions and things like that that get into these things. So maybe for me, this is more of like a trigger, let's say, because I'm really tapped into that sort of thing. Um, but also as somebody who looks at, you know, trying to think about how we can relate in society and... And, um, and how we can uh, create more ethical social arrangements. I look at this and I'm like, I'm not sure that this type of content is the best for its influence over how it is that we view, um, or let's say this, its influence over how our, our chemical flows, our emotive chemical flows um, are being stimulated. Because if you have a thousand people pieces of content that are creating similar types of emotive responses and titillating us and titillating us in these ways, um, I'm not so sure that it's creating the best habits for how it is that we respond, right? And then we become addicted to those types of forms of response and I'm not sure that that is always the best. So that's where I'm coming at it from, right? So yeah, let people enjoy things but also can't we call ourselves to higher things? And those are the kinds of conversations that I want to have. Yeah, and you know, this kind of gets, this is sort of, I think my
1: thesis and tell me what you think about it. I think okay. that this reaction stems from just an utter, like abject hatred for the dialectic, right? Everything that we experience and everything that we appreciate and value in life, we just value it and then we're done with it afterwards. This is a purely consumptive attitude like you talked about earlier, right? which is opposed Mm. to the dialectical form where you actually have to go through a process of negation to come out to a higher stage, right? It's not just eat the chocolate and you get the pleasure and then you're done. No, it's like go and fucking make the chocolate, right? And eat the bitter shit first. Mm. And then eventually you, get the switch i know this, this analogy is not working super well but you get what i mean right uh, the problem is <laughs> yeah, too yeah. much in our life has been automated to the point where we don't have any <laughs> uh, negation right it's just it's always positivity all the time um yeah it's just more yeah so it people react to criticism of things they like at least in two ways right first of all they have an identity like they, they their identity is constituted by that thing which is itself a bit of an issue right um and then they take any criticism of that thing as a sort of personal attack on them rather than like a call to discussion about this thing right here's you know here's mm. a counter argument right here's the negation come and join the conversation the discussion and produce negation of the negation right move the dialectic mm. along and that process obviously people who like us who studied philosophy every seminar room is just constantly that right yeah so we're used to it and it's and it's natural and obviously there's bad ways to do that by being a dick and attacking persons and um not really listening when the person's actually developing their point not really anticipating it and all that kind of stuff right um but there's good ways to do it and it's and when you do it in a good way it's it's like it's a it's a character development thing right it makes you a better person and a better appreciator of artwork when you're talking about in the form of cultural critique um and I think the re- we seem to enjoy that and so I, I i understand that not everyone's going to be like super in tune with that and want to get to that more abstract level discussing art that's totally fine right I, i'm okay with having a consumptive attitude towards some things we just you need to take a break and do that sometimes right um mm. but when it's when when the sort of the cultural trend is that everything is becoming like that right to the point where if you want to go to the movie theater it's yes. a choice between nine different disney films that are all the same right then then it's like well wait a minute this isn't just like hey i need to enjoy some things after i'm done with work like on friday or whatever no it's like this is the, it's the, everything's chocolate <laughs> i can't yeah, have only exactly. chocolate right exactly. i need to have some things that i mean obviously the um food's not the greatest analogy because much of food is, is is consumptive right obviously it's its main purpose is that but even then you can have some food that's not purely consumptive you're actually uh, going for a more uh, objective experience there um but yeah there there's there's a hatred of this dialectical uh method when it comes Mm. to art experience with art discussion about art and you know it doesn't mean that everything has to be that way but more than nothing
0: at the very least we're gluttons for certain types of nourishment you know and when we live in a, a rampant consumerist society which we do there's this constant flow of a type of nourishment, right? But what I wonder is, is not just variety for variety's sake, but um, but there is something about what I would want to do then is, I guess what I would want to do is this, is let's, I'm like, I don't know why I'm picturing, I'm picturing like a person with like their mouth over a spout and that spout is just like endlessly just like pumping fucking something, like a substance <laughs> into them, just like, <laughs> just like, <laughs> It's just fucking flowing, you know, um, like a water main has b- bursted, and it's just like just, stuff is just coming. That's like that's like us like just receiving stimulation from content and products and things like that, right? Um, and 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 I think that one of the important things for us to do is not just to just to to shit on that as grumpy people. But to stop and say, okay, so there's a desire that is happening here. Like, we want nourishment. We want connection, maybe. We want to to find a place. We want to feel fed, loved. We want to feel abundant, right? Like, we're getting something from this, right? Um... But what are we getting from it? So, like, the person who really fucking loves the TV show Game of Thrones, and they do maybe, I, I'm, I'm making something up here, and, and I hope this isn't, like, offensive to somebody, but, like, you know, like, they imagine themselves going on an adventure or they can they can really feel like, oh, my God, it would be so cool if I had the wit of Tyrion Lannister, right? Like, how he's, like, outsmarting, and he's like, I drink and I know things, and you're like, that wit, or, <laughs> um you know, like, you're on this adventure and you're like, ooh, we're going to go from this place to this place, and it's about, you know power and and making deals behind the scenes and you're like, Ooh, I wish I were shrewd in business or crap And maybe it's appealing to these more kind of latent desires that you have. Um, or there's the um, you know the really strong um, uh, female protagonist you know with Khaleesi with, with Daenerys like you're like oh man what a fucking badass and she's got baby dragons you know and I know that they turn into not baby dragons later on in the show but um, they're baby dragons and you're like that's fucking she's become a badass she's like coming into her power after having been like meek and kind of like sold off to, to, to marriage for political purposes and all of a sudden like maybe there's something in that as well and that's not all bad stuff Right, none of that is bad if that kind of is enticing you. That's that. That's like you're somehow getting nourished from that. I guess what I would want to do then is I would want to kind of like step back and say, so from from where is this nourishment coming, and then what is the like larger societal structure structural form that is conditioning the ways in which that nourishment is being provided, right? And those are the type of things that I'm more concerned about. Um, so for me, I can't just ever just say let people enjoy things even though I probably will say that sometimes too like shut up man let me have nice things you know like let me let me let me have theater you know or, or whatever um, and then for me I always want to make sure that I'm I'm kind of challenging myself and that I'm open because I'm, I'm really starting to think that it isn't about like detaching from it but that I'm open to like the deeper desires of my heart that are informing my attachment or my desire for nourishment from those products or from that content, right? Like what's really going on there. And that's, that's I think the more interesting level of, of discussion that we can have.
1: Okay. So I have a question. Um, what do you think it's mentioned in the essay? Um, what do you think about this sort of trend of people always assuming that a critical analysis of a thing especially in the negative form, right? It's always the negative form. It's the case. Yeah. is always coming from some latent, possibly subconscious motive to do anything other than actually objectively analyze the thing. So, like, Scorsese is criticizing Marvel films because he wants attention, James Gunn says, because his uh, last movie was put on Netflix and nobody watched it because it was too long or something like that, whatever it was. I didn't really read up on it. Yeah. Um, and that uh, anybody who gives a Marvel movie a negative review when it's got like 95% of Rotten Tomatoes is just trying to be the one person to give the negative review so everyone clicks on it and it's clickbait, right? Um, I think that's a really important point to, to to note why people go to that first and foremost as an explanation rather than actually addressing um, the negative comments that uh, in the form of argument that are that are made in Oh it's the it's review. totally
0: defensive. It's protective. It's it's well, it, here's my cynical retort. James Gunn is only making that remark so that he can get more people's butts in seats to go watch his new The Suicide Squad film because he's bought into the system. So he's that's the cynical take, right? That's the cynical retort. So he's just he's just digging his heels into his own entrenchment within the studio system. So it, it I feel like that level of discourse doesn't it doesn't get us anywhere because how are you going to out, how are you going to like out criticize someone for being a cynic when it, we fucking world is filled with possibilities for cynicism everywhere, you know?
1: (laughs) Well, that's the thing, right? And here, here's kind of my idea here. And this gets back to my, my thing about um, social facts sort of undermining um, any sort of like ethical uh, consumption of art that you could possibly develop. Um, Yeah. It's not wrong. To state that lots of people have cynical motives for making their negative comments about popular works of art—it's not wrong. Lots of people do yeah. do that, right? <laughs> um, James Gunn yeah. probably is doing that. I don't think Scorsese is, but that might be because I like Scorsese more than I like Suicide Squad, right? <laughs> um, yeah, it's not wrong to state that lots of people have cynical motives for doing things, and their grifting is like the number one way you can get rich quick in America, right? Um, yeah. Especially in like a social media space. So that's certainly true. And the problem is because that's true, it's it's rational. Like it makes sense to think of that as being an option on the table for explaining why someone has a negative review of a thing. It's rational to, to think, well, they're probably just cynical, right? And that's that fucking sucks. Like that's a, that's a sick, cancerous culture around your mm. your culture's view on art when the cynical interpretation is like the most ready to hand one right because it's so ubiquitous it's it happens so much and the incentives are so strong for people to do the cynical thing because it will get them more clicks right so the problem is yeah i mean i think that people shouldn't even with your if your culture is sick you still shouldn't like like stick a prod into the cancerous cells to multiply it right you have sort of a a kind of a duty to recognize the the cancerous cells in your culture and to fight against them right to inoculate uh, help um, improve the 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 health of the ecosystem or whatever right so you shouldn't even if it's rational to assume uh, a, a sort of cynicism on the part of a lot of people who disagree with you you shouldn't do that anyway you should try your best to not use that explanation unless it's absolutely the only one available and the only one that makes sense Um, But the problem is it still does often make sense. And that just kills any sort of good faith discourse, right? It's the, it's the, it's like the old kind of like Kantian idea of could a culture last if everybody lied all the time, if like lying was a norm, right? Well, it couldn't, right? That violates the categorical imperative, right? It's it's the same thing uh, when it comes to like cynicism in art evaluation. Like if, if it's, if it's totally normal, to cynically uh, make a case for things because you're grifting your way through art evaluation, then there can never be art evaluation in that culture
0: if that's the norm. Yeah, right. And I don't think this is this is this is stuck or localized within art either. I think that we live in an an extremely cynical time, and I think people don't stimulate integrity and they don't demonstrate integrity and therefore we don't inspe- we don't expect integrity what we expect is ideological positioning what we expect is tit for tat what we expect is cynicism and i think it's in everything it's in politics it's it's oh they only said that because they're they're this part of this party right like just listen to the the young turks i can't fucking listen to tyt anymore because they literally cannot engage with anything outside of oh they're just a part of that side and of course they're doing that cuz they're just a part of that side and it's like guys you are just sensationalist emotional fucking um auctioneers that's what it sounds like when i listen to them i can't anymore it's too much for me and and it's not just them it's 90 percent obviously that's not a a, a a real number I'm just throwing that out there um it's the majority uh there is a real lack of integrity and a real lack of building of integrity and therefore I think we don't expect integrity from people that often which is why like someone like Bernie Sanders comes along and people can't believe it right they can't like he has to be. There's some game. There's some angle. There's something. <laughs> he has to hate women. That's why he ran against them. Ha- yeah, <laughs> yeah. And and uh, um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. No, she's she she can't be real. She can't. She's 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 playing at something because we cannot accept the fact that people might actually have integrity in their positions towards something, right? And I think this is a sign of a very sick cultural component, right? Um, and I think that that's oftentimes where it comes from. And maybe what James Gunn is doing, and yes, I am going to psychoanalyze him here when he makes that type of remark, is that he's actually projecting his own inability to see integrity in other people because maybe he's not a very a person filled with a lot of integrity. right? Now, I know that that's maybe me making a judgment, that latter part, but maybe that's it because a lot of times when you accuse somebody of something else, really, it's just that you see something of yourself in them that you don't like, like a part of you that you don't like right? Maybe not all of you that you don't like but maybe it's like oh like you recognize certain things in yourselves or certain patterns or certain behaviors or you have an inability to recognize the positive something and so it's actually a limitation in yourself that you're projecting and then like you're inflating outwardly and projecting onto another you know and I think that that's a real sign of um, a sickness in, in a culture that is at large and 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 it's it's almost, and then here's me being a structuralist, it's not James Gunn's fault, <laughs> right? Um, this is a larger structural problem that we live in a, in a culture, in a society that doesn't create the spaces for people to actually have integrity. And we don't reward people of integrity, right? So we live in a world that that type of, let's call it a virtue for lack of a better term, isn't prized much. And so, therefore, there isn't a lot of emotional or temporal investment that's put into stimulating that as a central and widespread character trait. And I think that's I think that's part of this as well. And I think that's a big issue.
1: That's I mean, that's exactly my point I was making earlier, right? That when yeah. major social institutions, which occupy places of moral intellectual authority, like universities, for instance, don't embody virtuous activity, right? In, but instead see Students, for instance in this example as like customers to be served right then you're gonna produce like this moral confusion amongst them right that needs to be embodied right and so you need to have a a film industry which at least in some sense embodies like film as an artistic product to be valued for its intrinsic features and not as investment vehicles merely as investment vehicles uh, for investors and stuff like that, right? Which is all that, you know, films basically are these days. So, and the reason why we only have franchise films, right? So, mm. yeah, I mean, that's the, I think that's the key problem, right? We don't, it's not just, I mean, I, in part with James Gunn, it's such an egregious example that it also is his fault, right? I do think it's important to say like collective responsibility does not entirely mitigate individual responsibility, right? It just gives it a context, mm. right? You need to have a context for individual responsibility. It's not, you can't have... Uh, individual responsibility without a context of collective responsibility um, within to analyze it, and so the the egregious example of James Gunn. It's like, well, he's just wrong because it's stupid to think that Scorsese needs attention. <laughs> this guy, mm. anything he says will immediately be like front page news because he's fucking like the most famous director of all time. So th- that's <laughs> just some like dumb shit that somebody said. Um, that said for the most part i think when people are, are making these sort of cynical or providing these cynical interpretations and explanations for negative evaluations or reviews or whatever right um, at, at the individual responsibility they have whatever it is has to be understood in the context of what you know you've been saying that we don't allow a space for integrity in our culture yeah right it's it's all yeah. takedowns and um you know ravings about our favorite things based on the hedonic experience we have with the thing and the communities we form based upon our mutual hedonic experiences or whatever right um and that's just a really shallow and also kind of sick culture because of the lack of um, integrity building like fundamentals in the structure Mm. and if you lack those things in a culture it's going to be sick and it's going to degrade to the point where all you can have are people like fighting with each other over their cynical interpretations of one another always assuming the other person the the worst version of the other person rather than being able to provide like a good faith discussion about it and the problem is it's rational to do that because Mm. lots of people are cynical. Not everybody, right? Yeah. But well, we'd all be dead, right? But lots of people well, are, yeah. so
0: it makes sense to assume that in a lot of cases. I think this is this, one of the psychic effects of the postmodern experience. We've been burned too many times, right? We've been burned. It's like, it's like how can you believe in the narratives of progress? Well, you can't after World War II. How can you believe in the narratives of uh, you know certain types of, of human exceptionalism? Well we can't after the climate crisis, right? Like you can't believe in these things. How can we believe that the government cares for us? Well, we can't after you know we've we've learned too much. We know too much about the dark side of humanity. And so I actually think there's and I was gonna I was thinking this earlier and I didn't know if I wanted to fully say it, but I think it's true there's a misanthropy. In this cynicism and I think it fundamentally comes from we don't like each other we don't like each other we don't trust each other and it's because we've burned each other so fucking much so we're kind of creating this weird society where we relate to each other but we relate to each other in like a weird dislike of each other and then this would be the last thing I would say is I think that that's not bad I think that's okay let me put my therapy hat on for a second here um, I think what I would if I were in that situation I think that what I would be talking about with like my therapist is like okay so what's going on here like why why are you feeling this way and I think it's because there's a deeper desire a desire for more connection a desire for love we just don't have the resources for it right so if we think about it it's like we're in a relationship in like a really shitty abusive relationship with one another but we don't know how to get out of it so it's totally pathological because we've been burned, because we've been burned, but it's really this cynicism I think is is coming from this deeper echo of the heart that is saying, "Okay, but we do really want we do really want to care about people, and we do really want to have integrity and we want to trust people, but just don't fucking hurt me right, which is why a lot of like the new sincerity and like meta modern art and things like that do try to just be like, "Hey, you know what maybe we can just like love each other and care for each other and listen to each other and trust each other." But it's fucking hard. But I'm still, I'm still gonna keep a little bit of a critical eye on you because I still think you're gonna try to fuck me over, right? <laughs> um, but, but, but we just we're so jaded, right? That it's very difficult to open ourselves up to trust. But trust is something that's a practice that you learn over a long period of time, societally. And I think it's gonna take a lot of effort, and I think it's gonna take a lot of time. But um, I think that that is that is a cause that is worthy of of kind of like putting our efforts into. You know, is stimulating integrity and, yeah, I mean, and learning to open ourselves to trust somebody. And somebody like Scorsese for me, and I don't want to just be naive also, but somebody like Scorsese for me has earned some level of trust as a filmmaker, all that he gives back to the film community, as a teacher, um, as an educator, as a documentarian. So when he critiques a film, I, I'm i not saying there is no dimension of cynicism but I certainly don't think that that's the primary dimension by any stretch when he makes a critique.
1: Yeah, if anybody's earned that, it would, it would probably be square at least to give it a good faith try, right? And, yeah. and, I, and I wonder, you know, doesn't this kind of just stem from the fact that every, every component of, of society, of American society in the contemporary world is competitive, right, at every step? from um, like school trying to do better than everybody else so you can go to the best university where you try to do better than everybody else so you can get that job where you do better than everybody else at that job so you can get the uh, promotions or whatever. Every, and it also happens, I think, even outside of employment and universities, just in sort of the purely social sphere amongst friends, probably more so in America than a lot of other places where everything is competitive. And when you see scarce resources, scarce social resources as being available, and you have to outcompete everybody else to get them. And you treat everybody else as someone to conquer and beat rather than as someone to actually like co-constitute your life with, even mm. minimally amongst acquaintances, and then you know maximally amongst like your closest friends and partners. If you don't if you see life as competitive rather than that form of co-constitution, then you it's just gonna develop this sickness. That's just inevitable, right? And so it really goes down to the social fact where we've we've put together institutions from universities to um, uh, workplaces to, I mean, everything else, even the way we sort of incentivize families to be structured uh, and where friendships are naturally built to have this competitive sphere rather than this sense of co-constitution. And I think unless we change those things it's only ever gonna come out with this kind of
0: uh, sick and cancerous um, outcome. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. Hmm. Well, final thoughts. Let people enjoy things, but with an asterisk. Is Is that what we say? (laughs) <laughs> and the asterisk and the asterisk uh, leads us what? to a footnote that goes on for 20 pages yeah.
1: <laughs> the asterisk is on the word enjoy
0: right <laughs> what do you mean by enjoy yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um so I'm gonna post the a link to the essay down in the show notes um yeah give it a quick read it's not it's not super long and um yeah 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 I hope you enjoy it uh, uh. But also critically. I'm done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. So before we get out of here, you know what we got to do. The Sticky Leaves segment of the podcast. For those who don't know, Sticky Leaves segment is where one of us talks about whatever it is that's giving us and providing us meaning in a potentially meaningless world. So Austin, what's doing it for you this week?
0: All right. So we're in lockdown, uh, week eight. So basically I... Take walks, and I hang out with a little cute dog, and I hang out with a wonderful human, and I do it all over, every day. <laughs> so there's not much that uh, is going on other than that stuff, which is all great. Um, I hope you have wonderful little dogs and wonderful humans in your lives. Um, I get a nice cup of coffee that's nice, uh, you know, I'm on the coast. I, I really cannot complain like if I'm gonna do lockdown I'm fucking <laughs> on the beach and I get to go walk by the, the water like twice a day And I work out on this on these bars by the water and it's fucking great, okay? So I'm really not complaining um, all things considered personally things are good for me Even though things aren't necessarily great for the country or the world Um, but I have been binging a lot of television shows which is not something I normally do. Like I do, I do a little bit, right? But you know, like I watch more like indie film, art house cinema stuff than like binge a lot of TV shows. Like I do, I do binge. I got my stuff that I like to watch, but I haven't been up on a lot of the, the recent shows. Like I've really been behind on so many. Things. Like I just started watching Game of Thrones. Like I've stopped because <laughs> I'm over it. But uh, started that one like a week ago and moved on. But um, what else did I watch? I watched Walking Dead. Right? Um, I got through like fucking nine seasons of that or whatever it was. Ten seasons of that. Nine seasons maybe? Nine seasons. Um, So I watched a lot of Walking Dead. That was pretty cool. Um, I also watched the uh, TV series Hacks. I mean it's only one season. But have you seen Hacks?
1: No, but I've heard it's good.
0: Yeah, it's good. You know, 15 Emmy nominations. So that was good. Um, But what I really want to recommend is This Way Up. Have you watched This Way Up? I don't think I've even heard of that. It is fucking fantastic. No surprise, it is a British comedy drama television series and it, in the United States, is on Hulu, so you can check that out. If you're in um, the UK, I know it was on Channel 4. Um, If you're in Australia, I think we were watching it on Stan. Um, But yeah, it's called This Way Up. It is written by, created by, and stars an Irish actress by the name of um, Ashleen Baya.
1: Oh, yeah, Bea? I know her. Ashleen B, yeah.
0: She was How do you in say Taskmaster. It? Is it just Taskmaster. <laughs> yeah, she's in Taskmaster. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so she's fucking hilarious. And she wrote and created this show. And it's absolutely fantastic. Um, she is. Uh, the kind of like synopsis is, is that she is um, she teaches English to um, to like adult students that are learning English, and she has an extremely codependent relationship with her sister. And the show starts off. It's called This Way Up because the show starts off because her character um, Anya has just had a nervous breakdown and was in a rehab facility for a little while, kind of coping with things. And um, it's about her kind of putting her emotional life back together. I think that's why it's called This Way Up, Um, you know. uh, And it's fucking – it's funny and it's heartfelt and it's witty and the performances are amazing. Her relationship with her sister is fucking like one of my favorite things that I've seen on screen in a while. Um, It's the actress. Her name is Sharon Horgan. You might recognize her face as well. Oh yeah, um, she's an Irish actress. Yeah, she's. She great. did that, that one actress show,
1: Catastrophe. Yeah, I saw that.
0: Yeah, yeah, um, and she's she's amazing as well. And the two of them together are just they're they're fucking it's like perfect. Um, and so yeah, I would say you got to give this a, a, a chance. It's only like six or seven episodes each um, each season, and there's two seasons that are out. So it's super bingeable and really enjoyable and the episodes fly by and it's just one of those you know there aren't too many like you watch it and it's like really fresh and there's just a feeling that it 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 creates a mood a tone a vibe that it creates that is um that is kind of unique right not like not like revolutionary transformatively unique but it's just it's got a freshness about it right in a sea of things that are so similar. This one for some reason kind of stood out to me. And I had just finished watching Hacks. And Hacks is good. Don't get me wrong. It's really good. But I didn't love it with like a capital L O V E, right? Whereas I'm going to say that I love this way up. I think it's really fantastic. So, I I'm that's my that's my rec for for this week. And and it's got some interesting stuff too. It's got some interesting Little elements of social commentary and, um, you know, her sister works in finance and uh, she's working on a project for, like, women in finance that they're trying to do, like, ethical investing. Um, and then Anya's character, she makes a couple of remarks about kind of, like, struggles. Uh, they they live in London and so it's about, like, leaving Ireland for work. But there's also kind of other it, – it isn't, it isn't like – Pedantic, but there's an eye that's open to other larger concerns as well. Um, I don't want to say too much, but uh, you know, there's some references to like Windrush and Grenfell Towers and and things like that. So there's a lot of really interesting themes that are also coming up in the show. I I, I think it's actually it's it's really for me high quality um, bingeable television art. That's what I would say. It's fantastic. I would say check it out.
1: No, I'm super excited about this dude cuz this sounds totally up my alley. Um, I mean mm-hmm. just looking at the cast in addition to Ashley B. and Sharon Horgan's it got Osif Monvi in it. Who doesn't like Manvi? Yeah, he's Manvi? great. Um yeah, he's Tobias great. Menzies, is in it? He was terrible yeah. in Game of Thrones, but I like him anyway. Yeah, I heard I didn't, <laughs> get, <got> the... <laughs> I, didn't I didn't get
0: that I didn't get that far, but I heard <laughs> It's
1: got it's got the guy from uh, You're the Worst, which is another fantastic comedy that I love. So, yeah, this is definitely going to be uh, watched in this household.
0: Yeah, it's fucking... It's really good, man. It's really good. And it's it's an easy watch um, because, like I said, it's only six or seven episodes as those British series tend to do. And I am such a fan of that, by the way. Yeah. I just want to say that. So much That's
1: better than 13 episodes.
0: <laughs> fucking or 24 episodes like fucking the network shows do, right? It's just like... I, I think it's because you can really create... A very clear beginning and end, you know. Oh yeah, exactly. And there's in, in, yeah, a, ten, and so in there's a
1: ten or thirteen episode season, there's always three or four episodes that are totally unnecessary.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when you get six or seven, it's like you know that this was written from A to Z, and you are just gonna get taken along this really lovely story arc. And yeah, 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 yeah. So the second season just came out. I would, I, and we just kind of like binged straight through, right? So we didn't take a break, but we were talking with a friend of ours who they were waiting for the second season. So they kind of like sat for a little bit between the seasons. And I, I, I don't know what's better. I don't know if you should just like fly through the first season and then take a little bit of a break and then come back to the second season or if you should just go straight through. I think you should just go straight through because, because my friend was saying that she felt like there was a little bit of like a disappointment with the second season because it was a little bit different whereas for me just going from the last the season finale of the first season straight into the season premiere of the second season to me it just felt like it kind of just flowed really nicely even though they wrote in you know that there's like a gap of time between the two but it kind of just it flowed really nicely together so for me i did that but i don't know you know it's up to you radical okay. freedom You have the chance.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Okay. I have to ask you right now really quick before we end here because it's on my mind and I know it's never going to come up again. Um, Yeah. Have have you heard about the new um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt show, Mr. Corman, I think it's called, on Apple?
0: No. No.
1: Okay. So you don't need to watch it because I don't know that I'm going to watch it, but he is playing a mid-30s public school teacher in the San Fernando Valley who is kind of having an existential crisis watch the trailer and it feels a little too real maybe it's just me right because I grew up in the San Fernando Valley (laughs) and I think I have kind of a similar personality as Joseph Gordon-Levitt at least the way he's like stereotyped in movies and stuff um so yeah yeah, you need to watch that and feel like and and tell me is this like is this just what happens to people who grew up and who were born in the mid-80s in the San Fernando Valley like white guys (laughs) like me and maybe like his character I don't know that it's <laughs> okay, going to be any gonna... good, right? I think it's gotten pretty good reviews, but it, it, it feels a little bit too real to the point where I'm scared to watch it because it might like predict my life or something.
0: Okay, yeah, I haven't even heard of it, so
1: yeah, oh, so just watch I'm the trailer. At it right it's now, all you but... got to do.
0: <laughs> okay, deal, deal, deal. I will definitely check it out. Sick. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up the episode there. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. Uh, you can tweet at us, owls underscore at underscore dawn. You can email us, owls at dawn podcast at gmail dot com. And yeah, like Troy said, you can also support us at patreon.com slash owls at dawn. Next week we'll be doing the patron sponsored episode on the philosophy of pedagogy. We have got a cool article that we're gonna use as the kind of stimulator for that discussion. And I think that's pretty much it, unless there's anything else you gotta say, my friend.
1: Just one more thing I can think of, dude. What's that? Das the Amerikanski.